Lucifer News Lightbringer presents The Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire. Hey there, podcast mythheads, patrons, and mythical astronomers. I uh, did a little live stream today, today being Sunday the 21st of this good month of October in the year of 2018. It was a Q&A live stream, and I had on San Rixian and Melanie Lot 7 and Gretchen Ellis, and we discussed a lot of Nissa Nissa Night's Queen stuff that's pretty central to the Signs and Portals episodes 1 and 2, as well as a little bit of the stuff we touched on in the last two Weirwood Compendium episodes and the Zodiac uh, Garth Zodiac Children episode that we just did a couple weeks ago. So I figured I would release this one on the podcast feed. Um, I haven't been doing every live YouTube stream on the podcast feed lately. Uh, it depends. Some of them are so visually based that it really is just doesn't really work to edit it down to the podcast. Uh, but this one really had a lot of meaty discussion, and Gretchen and Melanie Lot Seven and San Rixian all had some really good things to say. We had some good comments and questions from everybody that came by. A lot of you regular myth heads were there putting in your two cents and four cents and six cents. And uh, we were all the richer. So there you go. This is lightly edited. There might be, uh, it's not totally cleaned up. And I didn't have the clean microphone feed from everybody. I just pretty much pulled this off of YouTube and edited the best I can. So uh, there you go, guys. Hope you enjoy. And if you want to see any of the art that we're sort of talking about you can obviously find that at the lucifer means lightbringer youtube page and you can see all the art as well as if you're on twitter uh at sanrixian on twitter always releases all the artwork that she does on each stream on her twitter feed so that you can check it out and there was some good ones today as there always is so that's it guys enjoy and i will see you soon oh i guess i should do the announcements here so a week from now uh, on the 28th a few days before Halloween, we'll be having our Under the Sea Halloween special where myself, Joe Magician, Crow Food's daughter, uh, San Rixan, and the Mythical Astronomy debut of Painkiller Jane. And we'll be basically breaking down all of Patchface's Under the Sea rhymes and riddles using the, uh, you know, using the Green Sea, Green Seer wordplay that Ravenous Reader has discovered and that we discussed in Weirwood Compendium 6, The Devil in the Deep Green Sea. That's um, actually the genesis of this discovery was sort of, uh, you know, a bunch of people all talking about Patchface's riddles, and eventually it led Ravenous Reader to discover the Under the Sea wordplay. So if uh, if you apply the Under the Sea is really talking about the Weirwood Net filter, it really does make a lot of sense of Patchface's riddles. So I hope you'll join me. And all of us on the 28th on the Lucifer Means I Bring a YouTube channel. It's going to be at the normal time of 3 Eastern. And uh, we'll all be in costume. I'll have what I hope to be my most impressive costume yet. So you won't want to miss that one. In any case, uh, oh, and by the way, this crazy music you're listening to, that was a little something I opened the stream with today. A little live space music for you. So there you go. And that, folks, is Lucy, star gardener himself, jamming good on that bass.
for us. <laughs> How's everybody doing today? Welcome to church. We're all getting ready. Yes, hello. My name is Ejon Stargarian, and I am the stoner equivalent to Daron the Drunkard Targaryen. I am trying to drive away all of my persistent dragon dreams through psychedelic drug use and electric bass with effects pedals, actually. Mostly just electric bass. But anyways, welcome to church, everyone. A little something different for you. Oh, and my goodness, I've already got a special guest. That was fast. <laughs> Who's that? Melanie Lot 7, say hello. Hey, everybody. Yeah, I just like popped right on really quick. <laughs> <laughs> I put out the word in the Starry Wisdom chat this morning. It was like, hey. Actually, the truth is, Melanie was hanging out IRL in the real yesterday with another myth head, a.k.a. Baal the Bard, Gretchen Ellis. Isn't that true? Yeah, absolutely. We spent literally five hours talking about mythical astronomy and related items, and it was wonderful to meet her in real life. Yeah. Nice. And I figured I would just have y'all carry on that mojo. And so I've invited both you and Gretchen on. And uh, I threw it at you last minute and said, hey, take your time, drop it whenever. So Gretchen will be along at uh, some point here, but keeping it loose today. I've done a lot of scripted episodes lately, a lot of between two weirwoods with very intense topics. And I figured we'd do something a little more cash today, a little more cash, do some Q&A, let, let you guys drive the, uh, drive the topic. I'll be taking, or we'll be taking rather, Questions of every sort. What you're trying to say there is, ladies, let them bees out. Let them bees out. <laughs> it's and a of cash course, stream. That's right. And uh, of course, I am joined, as usual, by the hands of Dorn, the hand of the dragon, Mallory Sanrixian, already working on something. What you got there? Uh, it's a Q&A. So I drew some Q&Bs. Got some ghost bees already. With ghost a uh, homage to the Werewood Submarine going yeah. God knows where. At this, at this point, like, we don't even have to question whether the bees are underwater with the submarine or the submarine is flying with the bees. It's pretty much all one continuum at this point, isn't it? Exactly. We've the erased all the borders. Yes, that's the whole thing about the signs and portals. The sea is the sky, is the underworld. It's all a big cosmic... It's all one. Mm-hmm. It's all a big cesspool, as they say. Oh, yes, a cesspool. Is our cesspool princesses, are they here today? Painkiller Jane, ravenous reader. Um, I see PKJ in the yep. chat for sure. Aziz, so yeah, Aziz, that's the joke. They're boo bees. They're ghost bees. So they're boo <laughs> bees. It's a it's a really tremendous bit of wordplay that that uh, sprang to life here on the mythical astronomy live stream. Was it so? Sanri, tell me, how did it come about? It was a collaborative effort, was it not? I'm pretty sure somebody said ghost bees. Uh-huh. And I'm pretty sure it was Stephen Stark. And uh-huh. um, I started drawing them, and I drew bees in costumes. And I, I'm not sure where the bees come from. I want to blame Melanie originally. That's where well, the, the bees come from. Well, it was the bees me and all my stored are, up anger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the bees. The bees are just in the air right now. I mean, the bees are everywhere. There's no no doubt about that. So, but then somebody said, you know, put a put a go, you know, make him a ghost. Put a a ghost hood on him. And then it became boobies, and I didn't get the pun until after the stream, so I felt like the biggest enabler. <laughs> so we don't even we don't even know who actually came up with the pun 
to begin I'm pretty, with. Yeah, it might be Steven. I'm pretty sure it was Steven, but I could be uh, wrong, as I'm known to be. Steven is backing away from taking credit. He's like, I don't know. <laughs> so, oh, we we have a cesspool princess here. We have Raven Salix. Oh, and Painkiller Jane. They're both here. Yes, the cosmic. Good lineup, the Good cosmic lineup in the suit. chat today. Which, by the way, I will tell you straight out, next week we're going to have a serious mythical astronomy Halloween roundtable on the 28th. It's going to be Joe Magician, Crow Food's daughter, myself, San Rixian, and the mythical astronomy debut of Painkiller Jane. Woo. And we're going to be having an under-the-sea roundtable. We're going to decipher all of Patchface's rhymes and sayings uh, in the context of Ravenous Reader's tremendous under-the-sea, uh, you know, uh, insight, wordplay insight. So that's going to be fun. It will be spooky. We will all be in costume, of course. But we will be, t- and by the way, yes, Painkiller Jane, that means you have to dress up. It makes it yeah. easier, to be honest. So, um, yeah, no, Quinn is doing his own Halloween stream on the 31st. I'll definitely give that a shout out, too. Um, but so this this is going to be a pure myth head roundtable. So basically, everyone that's going to be on the stream will be fully indoctrinated into all of the myth head stuff. Quinn is so busy churning out amazing two hour full length Dune videos. I'm not sure that he has time to listen to every single one of my podcasts. I know he gets some of them, but in any case we have a, is that, is that you're on Greyjoy or, Oh no, wait, no, it's, it's just Gretchen with shade of the evening colored hair. Yes. Yes. I have, I redid my hair and now it's like dark blue. That is definitely shade of the evening blue, as they say. It is. Well, it's cool. I've got the blue star eyes of the others today because I am Edge on Star Gardener, and yeah. I'm, I'm gardening stars. Did you catch the intro? I I did not. I've been eating food. Mm, ah, I did no, not. That, what did I miss? Little, oh, nothing. Nothing. Just like three minutes of psychedelic bass playing. You know. Ah, oh, damn it. Oh yeah, That's yeah. Excellent. Something. There might be more. There's you never know. If the people uh if the people demand more, there could be more. So we'll have to I see. am super distracted by whatever is going on with your face right now. Like it's it's very, very weird to not see the stubble. Like it's there's no stubble, yes. It's horrible. Yeah. It's really disconcerting. Grow it back. Grow it back. Everyone's upset. Now. Sorry. Now. <laughs> I usually uh it is a giant pain in the ass to to shave this whole chin area so i usually i have the beard both out of the fact that i I like the beard and it's just easier but um you know it's like those those videos where they have like a like a small child who's like dad shaves its beard (laughs) off and then they see them again and they're like and they start crying like who are you what have you done with david yeah i'm just well the truth is that uh next week for next week's halloween costume i'm gonna have to paint my face and so the beard had to go anyways I won't say any more. I won't say any more, but it will require face painting. So Hmm. the beard Hmm. will be back shortly. Don't fear not fear. (laughs) (laughs) It's inevitable. It's inevitably coming back. I mean, for a moment I had fake stubble with my costume from last night, but the SO vetoed it. He said it was too real. (laughs) I was, I was actually kind of wondering. I almost made a remark about that. I was like, why not the stubble? You know, but it's it cool. was too real. He didn't I was just such a died when I saw that. Oh my gosh! Yeah, Melanie showed it to me because I hadn't been on Twitter for several hours because I was driving, and I yeah, it was great. <laughs> Mallory, you are my favorite human. 
I thought I was going to get fired as Hand of the Dragon. I'm going to be honest. <laughs> I yeah. say that flattery is the sincerest form of... Imitation is the sincerest form of flattery? Thank you, thank you. There it is. And it's I like a you're parody. Going. Well, it's definitely funny. And in case any of y'all are not sure what we're talking about, yesterday on Secrets of the Citadel's Halloween live stream, which she had a little early because she's going to be out of town on Halloween... <laughs> We all dressed up, and uh, I did my best version of my Prince John, John Snow Prince mashup, uh, the artist formerly known as the Prince that was promised. Uh, but I was I was one upped, to be honest, by San Rixian, who dressed up as me. I think I can pull it. Oh, nice. <laughs> she's got the parrot. She's got the shades, some horns. Yeah. No stubble, but she's also got a little bit of a condescending look there, too, so that's good. Oh, I stood up and I did my best LML impression. I gave it my all, y'all. You did. The camera wasn't zoomed in on you, so you can only see it in the little box. But you did do the the trademark. So, yes. Full, <laughs> that was nice. Full credit. Anyway, so guys, this is a Q&A live stream, which means you guys can absolutely drive the show here. Um, like I said, we are keeping it loose. But I've done several episodes without really doing a Q&A. Um, we've done the Signs and Portals 1 and 2, which was about Sansa, ostensibly, but really about portals, you know. And then we did the uh, Zodiac Children of Gartha Green. We did uh, Weirwood Compendium uh, 5 and 6, you know, The Devil in the Deep Green Sea. We've unleashed the Green Sea metaphor. So that's like five scripted episodes without a real proper uh, Q&A. So we, you guys can ask me questions about that or... You can ask me questions about anything at all, and I'll talk about it, and we'll kick it to the panel, and we'll discuss it. And I know. have a question, actually, that I was thinking about ever since our religion stream when we were talking about shamanism sure. and um, animism and how it relates to portals and Shibalba, which was kind of a watery portal to the underworld. Mm-hmm. How do you feel like that fits in to our vast mythos? Well, I think that... Um, the easiest easiest place to spot Mesoamerican influence on A Song of Ice and Fire is the, the glass candles because mm-hmm. it was a major, major tool of South American um, sorcerers. You know, we again, we use the word shaman very loosely. They did shaman is a word from uh, the Tungus people of northern Russia. So they would use a different man. I think it's, is it Brujo or? Brujo? Uh, that's Native American or that's a Mesoamerican. Yeah, there's a lot of different words. Uh, it'll, be, it'll be different for the region. But the point is, your medicine men, your sorcerers, in, uh, in um, Mayan uh, cultures, particularly, I believe, the, uh, the obsidian scrying mirror was a big thing. And the mm-hmm. idea is like it's like a dark mirror, and it's very like the, uh, the weirwood gazing the into black the black mirror. pond. A winter I was like waiting to bring that up. I was just like... <clears throat> Holding on to my desk here, just waiting, but you, got, don't, you don't, beat me to it. <laughs> no, don't. Just uh, just interrupt me. Just cut in. Just go for it. But yeah, obviously that's a big thing because the glass candles, they're not used exactly like a mirror, but they're used to see, you know, astrally project and see across distances. And that is what these obsidian scrying mirrors were used for. So it's pretty much a straight rip, except for that we changed the mirror shape into a knife shape. But other than that, it's exactly the same. Um, I've talked about the cave of night where the sun hides uh, from John's wolf dream and a dance with dragons as being pretty much a straight copy of the of the Mesoamerican idea of the sun going underground at night and needing to be reborn 
Uh, and that's really where the the hero, the hero brothers going to Zabalba, going underground and coming back up. That's essentially um, it's sort of parallel Morningstar and Sun mythology because they both do the similar rising and setting things. So you'll find. And again, as we've talked about, often the morning star is regarded as the son of the sun, like Jesus is the morning star, God the Father is the sun, so on. So uh, in any case, the whole idea of the sun going underground, coming back up, the cave of night, I think I think Martin pretty much took that from Mesoamerican myth. Yeah, uh, Cruandero, that's the word I was looking for. Thanks, Painkiller Jane. Uh, I'm probably saying it wrong too, but... Yeah, Bruja and Brujo are uh, Spanish for witch okay. and warlock. Which mm. so that's commonly used in um, Mexico, I think. Right, and but, so on one hand, it's always important to to use the specific words and and understand those specifics. But at, at the same time, on another level, uh, you know, the roles that different people serve in society are fairly universal. There's always a medicine man. There's always uh, a gardener. There's always the seller of herbs. There's always the intercessor with the god. Sometimes it's a priest. Sometimes it's a shaman. Sometimes it's a medicine man or woman. Uh, but, you know, there's a certain similar role that's being played by all these folks. And that's kind of what we're keying into here. In any case, I've got a super chat from Anime Lover Q&A. Have you read The Ice Dragon? And do you think it could be in the A Song of Ice and Fire universe? So George has said that it's like not technically in the universe. I forget the quote exactly. Um, but what I, the way that I picture it is like that's like one of old Nan's tales that she tells to Bran. So it's like. Not necessarily like if we shouldn't look at Adara and start con- constructing tinfoil about how that's actually the Night's Queen or whatever. However, the mechanics of the world of the Ice Dragon seem to be very identical to A Song of Ice and Fire. And we know that Old Nan tells stories about the Ice Dragon to John and Bran and the kids. So I just pretty much picture the Ice Dragon story as one of Old Nan's stories. What about you guys? I have, I have something to say. I kind of look at it as the fairy tale, like an actual fairy tale instead of uh, something that happened a long time ago and has been you know, corrupted into a fairy tale. But I look at it as an actual fairy tale that exists outside of the main story, but is kind of auxiliary, like you're saying. Um, it's really similar to the way that uh, J.K. Rowling had that little slim set of kind of fairy tales that were told inside of the Harry Potter stories, kind of along those lines. Absolutely. Yeah. Like an expanded in-world fable. That's, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Yep. I mean, I don't really have anything to add to that other than ice dragons are cool. Yeah. And I I think that he did that. And I think the main uh, implication for a song of ice and fire is the one that I talked about based on Duran Durandon's research in the very first Blood of the Other series, where I was comparing uh, the Night's Queen to like an icy version of Melisandre. Adara, the girl that's sort of like bonded to the ice dragon in that story, is pretty much like a prototype of, of what that would be like. She's the cold steals into her mother's womb. And so Adara comes out cold right from the beginning. She has blue eyes. She's cold to the touch. She's basically like, um, like like Melisandre, but with cold, you know, and but she's not undead and she's not transformed. She was literally born that way. And so she's like a living ice priestess or ice woman. And I think that is the same idea as far as like, uh, you know. Um, so you think that. Pri- Go ahead. Oh, I was just asking. So you think that she's going to be like. Uh, never mind. No. 
wrong. I, I understood what you said wrong. <laughs> so ba- this basically the idea is like there's, you know, we're presented with we call knights. What we call knights queen is actually never referred to as knights queen in the book. She's right. called the corpse queen of the knights king. Um, and so that leads us to think, oh, she must be like a white because she's cold. She has blue star eyes and she's like a corpse. But at the same time, she's described as beautiful. And we've not seen any corpses that are beautiful. And, you know, it could be that, you know, she was a corpse, the corpse of Nissa Nissa. And so Knight's King Azora High fell in love with her because he was already in love with her, even though she was a corpse. But I prefer the idea that she was more like a cold version of Melisandre. So she's cold to the touch. She has blue star eyes. Um, she's like a female other, but she's also beautiful and she's a sorceress because she does this kind of a succubus thing with Knight's King where she takes his seed and soul and then, you know, gives their sons to the others, which means creates others. So it's very much like she's taking his energy, creating others with it. Uh, and that to me sounds like like a sorceress, you know, not just like a corpse or a white or something. What do yeah. you guys think? Definitely. There's got to be some kind of magic involved in that. Like some kind of like ice priestess stuff like you'd mentioned. Um, and like we've been talking about and discussing for a while now, like the different elements in uh, in our story that we're given. There's got to be different aspects to them we don't fully understand yet. And I just can't wait for us to finally get Winds of Winter so we can see what's going on because it's driving me crazy. Yeah, we're going to get another male POV chapter, I have to think. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. I think we'll get a lot of information out of that one. I have faith. I, yep. I also like the idea that, like, we're so quick to take phrases like corpse queen literally, as if, like, she is a corpse who is a queen, when, like, linguistically, corpse queen can also mean, like, the queen of corpses, like, the queen of the dead, rather than necessarily a queen who is dead herself and undead herself. Um, and that's just the kind of thing that I would imagine Martin would play with to like call someone, you know, or to, to have the idea, this idea is permeated in the fandom that like she's a corpse because of the idea of a corpse queen. It's like, well, but it never says, you know, it never actually says she is a corpse. She could be a queen of corpses, of dead people. Like, I think so it's she- easy to jump to that because there's already sort of like this existing corpse bride, corpse... Um, you know, woman idea that's sprinkled in other, you know, um, movies and stories and such. And Mm -hmm. it's really easy to just be like, oh, that must be what he's talking about instead of really closely analyzing it like you're talking about, Gretchen. Yeah, yeah. Because, yeah, I have a hard time believing that, like, she could be undead and also captivating. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's kind of how I think. (laughs) Right, like, if if she's actually a walking corpse, like, what is appealing about her and also how could she actually give birth if she's a walking corpse i mean she's dead people can't have baby like an undead body can't have babies so like she's got to be living somehow she's got to be between the logistics and the bad smell (laughs) there's a few problems there is yeah oh yeah that that actually is the kind of thing you'd need the kyber ecologist for (laughs) did you guys <laughs> Have you guys watched uh, our live stream from yesterday, the Halloween stream on Secrets of the Citadels channel? I haven't had a chance yet. No, okay, me neither. Okay. I wish. Okay, well, that came I'll catch up. up on it, though. Yeah, yes. we were talking about all the darkest moments, and Kyburn came up, and okay, anyway. So, um, 
Yeah, that's a, you raise a good point, though, Gretchen. Uh, George Martin goes out of his way to specify that, you know, Barrick, for example, does not have pumping blood, even though his hot black blood gushes out when he's sliced. Uh, George says it wasn't pumping and moving around. So it, it must have been an inert state. Uh, and that means that, uh, you know, all these undead people, I don't think that's the whole thing about John. Like, unless John is resurrected through weirwood magic or something in some sort of status that we have not seen yet, he's not going to be able to have any babies with Danny. Um, you know, sorry, Kyle Lisi, but that's uh, <laughs> that's not going to happen uh, in the books. In the show, John's all good and seems to be ready to be like, oh, yeah, how do you know you can't have any babies? Let's try it. Uh, but try on, the, on the books. Hashtag uh, boat sex. Yeah, but in the books, that's not the case. Um, if in, you know, Like I said, unless he's resurrected in a manner that we haven't seen yet, he's not going to be able to have no kids. Um, so, yeah, anyways, we've, uh, I, I, think, uh, I think all that points to Night's Queen being more like a cold Melisandre than, uh, than, a, than a corpse or well, an like actual that. other. I like the idea of her being like an other, but also like I really want her to be Nisa Nisa at the same time. Like, you know. Well, there's just... we've, well, that's actually a great uh, point to bring up to transition into some of the signs and portal stuff because this is what we're leading up to with Sansa uh, is that she's doing very obvious Nissa Nissa stuff in King's Landing. And this is why I made it, I, I took the time to really like, really make it clear at the Purple Wedding and at, and at the Battle of the Blackwater, Sansa is doing just tons of Nissa Nissa stuff, tons of fiery, fire moon stuff, light bringer forging stuff. It's all hot and fiery. But then after she leaves and goes to the Eyrie, she turns into a Night's Queen. And we haven't only begun to tap into her symbolism there. Um, but it doesn't, I'm sure you guys can see just from what we know about the Eyrie and all that stuff. Like this is all cold corpse queen, Night's Queen symbolism. Sansa even calls herself a corpse and you know there's lots it's a tomb at the eerie and all that stuff so there's a strong hint uh that that there's a transformation there some part of nissa nissa must go into night's queen the question is how it doesn't seem like a direct thing like we know nissa nissa goes into the weirwoods and becomes the weirwood goddess and becomes part of the weirwood net then we have night's queen coming out of the haunted lands in the north, the north of the wall, just sort of coming out of the woods. And so to me, this seems like perhaps some part of Nissa Nissa escaped the weirwood nets. There was maybe a bifurcation of some kind. Um, we're entertaining all kinds of ideas in our sort of chats lately about this topic. It's, it seems to be pretty wide open, but there's definitely, Mallory, to your point, there's definitely some sort of link between Nissa Nissa and Night's Queen. Um, but I don't think it's a complete simple simple thing as she turns into night's queen because i think that a lot of her remains in the weirwood net you know she raises the green zombies she occupies the weirwood net sort of becomes it so i was thinking like her physical body if it remained would be night queen or the yes. corpse queen that's the other idea like somebody stole nissa nissa's corpse and animated it and is wearing it basically mm. or maybe the other way around where there just happened to be a kind of beautiful corpse hanging around and Nissa Nissa animated that corpse that just happened to be hanging around. Yep. That's also in play. Ooh. Lots of dark things here. And if, if a Night's King is Azora high, which there's tons of evidence pointing to a very strong link, we just don't know if it's one of, 
you know, their, their archetypes, their father and son are of the same line. I favor the idea that Night's King himself, though, is the original Azor High that broke the moon, with the last hero more likely being, being a child, a descendant, nephew, something like that. So if this is true, if Night's King is Azor High, the same one that killed Nissa Nissa, and some part of Nissa Nissa is in Night's Queen, you can see why this is some sort of really twisted, dark love story here. Gretchen, you have anything to say about this dark love story? Um, I really like it. And uh, Melanie and I have been talking a lot about, um, especially the relationship between Sansa and Arya, which I think um, could potentially go to represent this kind of bifurcation of Nissa Nissa because after the death of, I mean, you start seeing it before Kat's death, before the Red Wedding, but really after the Red Wedding is where we really see like Arya going to Bravos and kind of exploring this very like, death goddess, assassin, like vengeful role. Whereas Sansa is the one who's in the eerie and more of the like frozen saying she's a corpse kind of role. So it almost feels like Sansa and Arya are kind of displaying the two, whatever that bifurcation is. Um, Which again, for Melanie and I, which is why it's so exciting to think about the possibility of them like reuniting is kind of representing like the union, like the reunion of Nissa Nissa that like Nissa Nissa in some sense has to be healed and brought to herself. That could be like Night's Queen sort of going back into the trees, couldn't it? It could be. Yeah, definitely. Melanie, did you have a point to make about this? So we explored the the father-son connection with Azor Ahai. And I was just wondering, like, what do you think if Nissa Nissa's spirit jumped into her daughter? Because we've brought up in the past several times, I think even on live streams, the idea that um, Nissa Nissa might be an inherited title. And if she had a daughter that survived, that was hanging around, what if Nissa Nissa's spirit um, is sharing a body with her daughter? That would be kind of a way to have it look like one person, but it actually being two people and having like that bifurcation in one person. I don't know. Just thinking about it. I mean, these are all the kinds of freaky things that are possible with body snatching and collapsing archetypes and stuff. So, well, it brings up the really. There's a really interesting fairy tale that this reminds me of. Called uh, there are several variations. One of them is called Donkey Skin, and that's probably the most well known. And it's the idea of like a a king whose wife uh, dies, it leaving a daughter, and the daughter is grows up to be very beautiful and basically be the spitting image of her mother. And then the king tries to marry his daughter because he's trying to replace his long lost wife with his daughter, who is the exact image of her mother. And then, so the daughter runs away and has her story. But like, it's that idea of somehow the parent is reborn in the child. And that was just what where my brain went when you were talking about like, and I hadn't thought of it before, of like Nissa Nissa's spirit in some sense being in her daughter. And like, that's a really fucked up love story. Donkey Skin, like that fairy tale is a really fucked up love story. I'm actually fairly familiar with that. And um, yeah, it brings to mind the the general trope too. I mean, I I hate to keep like bringing up generalities, but the trope of a parent who's, you know, like a father who has a daughter and the daughter's a spitting image of his mother and maybe something bad happened to the mother and the, the father has trouble living with the daughter. But this is kind of the other way around where the father mm-hmm. wants to marry the daughter. And yeah, that I think Martin could be playing around with that trope and kind of making it more disturbing for us all. Right. 
Right. Yeah. Because if because if Nissanis has had a daughter and some piece of her is in there, like imagine what would happen with Azor Ahai if he found out that like a piece of his missing wife is like in his child. Like I can see it getting really creepy. Very creepy. There's also um, a Welsh myth that you've made me think of about, uh, I don't know how to pronounce her name. I'm assuming it's Dahut or Dehut. In this myth, there's a king who um, marries a woman from another tribe, basically, and they have a daughter while they're out riding their seahorse on the sea. And the daughter's name is Dahut, and she... um, she is lovely like her mother, and Dahut, Dahut's mother says, you have to bring me back to my home, which is in the sea. And there's like this whole mermaid connection. But anyway, mm-hmm. yeah, like the whole idea of the father marrying the daughter, et cetera, et cetera, um, is kind of encapsulated in that myth too. So uh, Duran Durandin, who, of course, whose research inspired the uh, Knight's Queen uh, Melisandre comparison from uh, Blood of the Other One, pipes in to say that Adara from the Ice Dragon, her mother dies giving birth to her, and her father has a weird relationship with her in part because of that. So, Dern, can you expand on that one? I actually have a story, guys. I've only, like, skimmed it and, and read a summary. I've just recently bought it and haven't actually read it all. But is it, like, a weird relationship, like like, like, uh, like we're talking about, like an incesty thing, or is it, like, like a Tyrion-Tywin uh, thing where Tywin hates him because... Uh, killed his mother coming out of the womb but let me know but in any case that's interesting that that's going on and of course uh as uh isabel harper is piping in and as everyone probably is thinking when we talk about this idea of a king falling in love with his daughter you know an imitation of her mother that's obviously reminiscent of peter baelish cat and sansa right i mean that's basically what's going on there absolutely absolutely and and I have as part of my next essay that's going to be coming out about uh, the usurped women, that's going to be a huge discussion is is Peter Baelish messing with two generations of women, um, trying very hard if, since he, you know, it's like he failed with the mother. Now he's going to try and succeed with the daughter. Um, and that's a very, uh, and, it's a, and it's a very creepy thing because he disguises Sansa as his daughter and yet also wants to make Sansa his wife. And so, yeah, it's got that same kind of, it's not actually incest, but like it's really creepy and weird that he's like both trying to treat Sansa as a daughter and a wife. And some part of him might even think of her, of her as like the daughter he should have had with Kat. But also some part of him sees her as like a replacement for Kat to be his wife because he deserved to have Kat as his wife. And it's really, really gross. Oh, just so yuck. <laughs> yeah, Peter is just... Um, there's so a reason Peter, why we call him Creep Eater. Creep mm-hmm. Eater, yep. And that's why your Valerian Steel Sword is also called Creep Eater. Yes, yes, that is my Valerian Steel Sword. Eat all that's the creeps. Right. That's right. Oh, and then Sandry, are you doing a Creep Eater now? Oh, yeah. It looks, <laughs> oh, it looks like a good one. Make sure uh, he's got pants. Oh, no. <laughs> yes, thank you. Thank you, Melanie. Thank you. Uh, so... Um, Stephen Stark is piping in that the Adara relationship with her father is um, more like a more like he sort of idolizes her, uh, which which is which makes a little more sense, I guess, a little bit less creepy there. Um, but it leads to some sort of scene at the end where the first time Adara ever cries is in her father's arms. Well, that sounds sweet. That's nice. So, in any case, uh, there was a super chat from a while ago. We've been having a good conversation, but my friend John Bronstein. Dragon patron, Bronsteries, 
uh, has sent in a super chat question, which is, he says, hi, LML, Mel, and Gretchen. Question, if the Bloodstone Emperor is the Knight's King, meaning Bloodstone Emperors and like the evil Azor Ahai figure, if that's really Knight's King, uh, then I get the necromancy, the dark arts and all that that's attributed to the Bloodstone Emperor. But why is the Bloodstone Emperor said to be a torturer? That doesn't seem like what the others do. So the context here is we're looking at all these sins that the Bloodstone Emperor is described as committing, and we're trying to see how that applies to this Azor High Knight's King figure. And a lot of them make sense. Practice dark arts, necromancy, obviously, worship the Black Meteor, yada, yada, yada. But he was also said to torture people. So I guess I would interpret that as the torture of being made a white and having your body or soul, some part of your soul held captive forever. I would say that's probably how that, um, how that translates. But we do see a very important Bloodstone Emperor archetype, Ramsey Bolton, who is an actual torturer too. Um, so we might look to Ramsey's torture and see how that relates to the process of whiteification. So let's think about that. What is he doing to Theon? He's dehumanizing him, right? He's taking his identity away and turning him into some sort of revenant. Uh, that's That could definitely be, and he's described as being corpse-like. So what do you think, Mel and Gretchen and Sanry? I immediately went to Kyburn before I went to Ramsey. And I think Kyburn is another good like insight into potentially what Azor Ahai is doing or what the Bloodstone Emperor was doing with this torture. Because essentially what Kyburn is doing is he's experimenting with the human body and trying to figure out, um, trying to understand the secrets of life. Like how does one resurrect somebody? It's necromancy, but he's doing, he's also torturing alongside necromancy in order to understand, I think, the human body and, and human life and kind of where that all comes from. And I think that that could be potentially a thing that someone like a Bloodstone Emperor figure who uh, seemed also to be interested in the idea of immortality and understanding like human life and extending human life potentially, because what is living in a weirwood, like living in a weirwood or attached to a weirwood, but a form of extended life um, can see him potentially experimenting on people and trying to figure out kind of how bodies work and how soul like or even like the idea of how souls are attached to body how human is someone if you resurrect them think of robert strong is robert strong a person right yeah i mean that's what kyburn's doing trying to figure out like how much of a person is left after you cut their head off and (sighs) it was a great great show moment when when sander stared at gregor is like what have they done to you brother I was going to say, I really like that idea, um, Gretchen, that Kyburn's exploring the space or is trying to figure out what the spark of life does, where it comes from, et cetera, et cetera. He's exploring the space between life and death. Exploring that liminal space between life and death is a way that you could look at the Bloodstone Emperor trying to figure out how to get into the Weirwood Net. Because it seems that if you have to be sacrificed to get into the Weirwood Net, you're transitioning into death, but you are also going into that perhaps permanent immortal life within the weirwood net. And maybe it was just like a series of experiments trying to see if he could make somebody go into the weirwood net. That's all. (laughs) Yeah. And you might ask, you might ask Nissa Nissa, uh, how, you know, how she likes being stabbed with a hot sword. It might qualify as torture. Uh, Right. And and like, who knows whether or not the torture was 
Um, whether he only practiced torture after he usurped his sister. Like torture could have been something that was ongoing for a very long time, but it was only after he ascended the throne that people knew about what he was doing. Um, the other thing that I think of are the Valerians. Like besides like Ramsey and Kyber, and you have the Valerians who are known for doing like genetic experimentation and trying to create like human animal hybrids, which is another way to talk about exploring that like what how I mean from a at a symbolic level it's the idea of I mean all of the human animal hybrids tend to be symbols for like children of the forest human hybrids or way the Giscari did that yeah. too didn't they yeah. I think so. It's kind of interesting because, like, um, of course, my brain goes to art. And the first thing I, yeah. I love your drawings, Henry. Oh, my gosh, it's great. This is my contribution to the question. Thinking about sin. I love it. Um, <laughs> but um, I was thinking about how Michelangelo and da Vinci would actually, like, go into morgues and look at bodies in order to understand anatomy. And, like, there are some very early drawings, and it's going to get naughty for a second. Sorry, but, like... There are cross sections of like the penis inserted into the vagina in like the Renaissance period and figuring out how that would all work and figuring out that level of anatomy at that time, they were definitely like going in and doing some stuff they shouldn't have been doing. So this kind of like pushing the envelope for science kind of deal that Kyburn has going on, like I want to respect it, but he's just so damn creepy. Like, uh, it does that kind of... Yeah, totally. Well, so I was saying that, like, you know, I don't think Kyburn and what he's doing to Gregor literally relates to much of anything else, but as a, as a sort of metaphorical parallel to the Whites and to what the Bloodstone Emperor slash Knight's King was doing, I think it works very well. Uh, and Kyburn has Solar King symbolism because instead of... Um, gray maester's robes he does a maester's robes in white with gold mm -hmm. trim and so he's like this white and gold maester with white hair uh so yeah I, I think that kind of all works and the other thing that the chat is talking about is um like whose head gregor has you know there's a tinfoil about rob stark rob's head being on there and that's why one of the reasons why a gray area had the tinfoil crown mm -hmm. on her gray wind head yesterday but I think it's more likely that um, Robert Strong has one of the dwarf heads that was brought to Cersei oh, um, no. because those there's, you know, it's, it's said that they're, they're big. And the idea that there's a giant with a dwarf's head really makes sense because we've seen Tyrion being called a giant and we've, and we've seen the ranger giant is a child size dude. And so there's this whole giant child dichotomy, a brand inside Hodor is the child giant. Um, so I think that's a running thing, and it would make sense to me if Gregor has a, a, a child's head on it. But Love I do you. think to get back to your original point about Theon, it is interesting that, like, the Boltons are flayers. Because, what I mean, he's dehumanizing him, and he's also, like, peeling his skin off, which is, you know, like... Ah, uh, oh, yes. There you exposing, go. He's exposing, you know... I mean, it's skin changer stuff in a really creepy, gross way. To like attempting to like steal someone's skin, steal a part of their identity, and then like sending bits and pieces of it to his family members as like, <sighs> um, but yeah, like that torture and dehumanization, I think, is also like does relate to the whites in terms of the idea of potentially like if the if the others have pieces of human soul in them, then somehow they were detached and sent in through the weirwood net into something else. 
And so they are being like pulled away from their like their their skin is being pulled off and what is inside is being like pulled into the weirwood net and then sent out somewhere else. And so this is actually gets right back to our whole mystery of Nissa Nissa Night's Queen. Like we're talking about was Nissa Nissa's corpse worn by somebody else? Did Nissa Nissa's spirit come out of the tree and wear someone else's corpse? Um, and the other thing I wanted to bring up in light of that was the whole Elaine Stone identity that Sansa wears when she goes to the Eyrie, because it's almost like Sansa wearing the corpse of Elaine Stone. We've got this this fictitious identity who doesn't really exist, and she Elaine Stone was what in a sept, right? Was was she part of a sept or? It was. I think it was. It wasn't the Silent Sisters. I think she was in a, the Mother House of a sept. And she wrote to, you know, supposedly wrote to her father, Peter Baelish, because she didn't want to become a septa. And so she came to live with Peter Baelish. And now this is Elaine. So and they even talking about uh, Sansa's always talking about I must be Elaine now. Um, And I I don't know if there's any actual put on language, but it's definitely like an identity that she's wearing. Um, So I, I have to wonder if that's like Nissa Nissa coming out of the tree and wearing a corpse or something like that. What do y'all think? Well, I think that's her response to, like, the trauma kind of, too, like, um, that she's been through. But I like the parallel of her, like, being this and this and coming out of the tree. That that would make sense. I like that a lot more than I like my realistic theory <laughs> of trauma. I like, I like how it draws in the, the cloak as a, as a metaphor for skin changing, because I know that there's, like, the specifically that really symbolic scene where uh, Sansa's going out and she's creating the little mini snow Winterfell and she's got a cloak. I think it's a blue cloak and it's got white fox. And um, I I like the idea of Sansa as a Night's Queen figure being able to put on and take off that cloak at will. Yeah, You're you're talking about the House Florence sigil that has the red fox Mm -hmm. surrounded by the blue flowers. So it's like... Right, like a fiery Nissa Nissa fox hiding inside of a cold, like chilly Night's Queen circle. Ah, oh, that makes a lot of sense. Okay. Yes, I remember we kicked that around uh, in one of the chats a few weeks back or something. I forgot about it. Yep, there you go. So, and uh, Painkiller Jane points out that Elaine, uh, Sansa also dyes her hair as Elaine. So there's another. There's, I mean, there's a lot of uh, cloaking language. And to get back to the Boltons, they actually were said to flay the Starks and wear the skins of the Starks. So. That's pretty, um, you know, I, you know, we talk about the brother-brother dichotomy. Um, uh, Crowfoot's daughter talks a lot about it. And I think um, one of those is definitely this idea of Brandon the Breaker being the brother of Night's King basically gives us the idea of a Stark hero taking down a Night's King figure. And they're said to be brothers, maybe bastard brothers, you know, half-brothers or whatever. Uh, and so I think that the Boltons essentially represent the Night's King side of that dichotomy if you will, like you could almost call them just like evil Starks, whereas House Stark is like the good Starks. Bolton is like the, the Night's King version of a Stark. And so that's why they're flaying the Starks and wearing their skin. Uh, it's something, it's like a imitation or I don't know, something. The bad brother always wants to look like the good brother, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. that Jacob and Esau stuff, huh? Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Like putting on that. I mean, and that's, um, Amanda has talked about this with the Cloak of the Hairy Man. Like the, the um, right. Hugo Amai, who wears the cloak of the hairy man, is not only skin changer symbolism; it's pretty directly like a reference to Jacob and Esau, because that's what that's what Jacob does. He puts on the skins of a goat 
to make himself look hairy so that he will be confused for his older brother and given his birthright. So there's usurpation symbolism in that too. Isn't there also in um, in the Iron Islands with uh, House of the Brother? Isn't uh, the and the oh gosh, like I'm so bad with the names in the Iron Islands. Um, I know that there's one good brother that who's actually like really really terrible and usurps. Oh, he was and, called Bad Brother. Yeah, it was like um, mm-hmm. I think it was Euron, Euron um, Red Hand, wasn't it? Red Hand makes yeah, that sounds right. But yeah. So there's that. Uh, so uh, Ravenous Reader is piping in with the uh, Thistle Vermeer scene, which, of course, is uh, depicting Azor High invading a Nissa Nissa weirwood tree figure uh, and put it, basically putting on her skin. And the quote is, The last to look was the thing that had been Thistle. She wore wool and fur and leather, and over that she wore a coat of hoarfrost that crackled when she moved and glistened in the moonlight. So this is just a minute ago. She was a Nissa Nissa weirwood goddess figure, and now she's frozen and she's wearing a coat of hoarfrost. So this again is like putting on a cloak, putting on a coat. So nice, nice call there, Ravenous. I was just thinking about like as I was drawing um, Nisa Nisa being that one quote he took a tiger woman as a bride as his bride or whatever it is. Um. What if she was just like a green seer who could skin change tigers? Like, what if it's that literal? Well, it definitely could be. And of course, we've talked about the whole Catwoman symbolism yes. of all the Nissa Nissa figures. So, yeah, t- Tiger Woman is really intriguing. Um, I think that I think Tiger Woman might be Nissa Nissa. I think that might just be confused uh, because if Nissa Nissa was a child of the forest and an elf woman, then that might be your Tiger Woman right there. And yeah. I'm going to go back into that when we go to the old ones and Lang and all that stuff, which uh, is coming. And then you've got Danny wearing the Hrakar like a cloak. Yes. And it's white. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Ravenous Reader loves that one. Um, let's see here. So I had a good question come in a minute ago from Stephen Stark. And he asks, what is the purpose of the parallels of Garth's children and the Zodiac? To build his own mythology, to foretell the series, to achieve some other purpose. So first of all, I think it's just George likes clever treasure hunt stuff and the Zodiac is a great thing to riff on. And so part of it is just for fun. Um, But the purpose, quote unquote, is to support the green zombies theory because the whole idea of the Zodiac figures, like I was saying, is except for Libra, they're all humans or animals that were transformed into constellations in honor of their heroic deeds. And so that is a starry resurrection motif and that fits his whole concept of the green zombie. So I think when he was thinking about the last hero's 12 dead companions, I think that was always a green zombies idea from the beginning. That's how he conceived it. And I think that the Zodiac probably influenced him right from the beginning. And, you know, there's a 12 disciples. There's lots of other dozens in history, the 12 tribes of Israel, which people argue about whether or not they correlate to Zodiac or not and the various gemstones and stuff. And Gretchen actually might have a comment on that. I'll give that to you in a second. Uh, but in any case, there's lots of 12s and the Zodiac is kind of, you know, the obvious one to riff on. So I think this was figuring into his equation from the beginning. And in particular, by hiding the Zodiac people as Garth's children, he's, it's another message that these last hero zombies are horned people. They're green men. And we should, we should think of the sacred order of green men 
because that's the whole important thing is that Garth and the Green Men have identical descriptions. And so if the last heroes group, that dozen resurrected starry people, those starry heroes, if they're the children of Garth, that means they're Green Men. And so this again gets back to my theory that the pact on the Isle of Faces with the Sacred Order of Green Men being formed is actually the story of the first Night's Watch being formed and the green zombies being killed and resurrected or maybe just resurrected or created or however that however that worked. So that is the point, Stephen. It's to support the green zombies theory, in my opinion. Thoughts? Uh, I only caught, I was, uh, I can't do two things at once. So I was like typing a response to something in the chat when you mentioned my name. What was it specifically that you said I would have, have thoughts so, on? So I was, so I was talking about, um, the fact that people debate whether or not the 12 tribes of Israel are related to the Zodiac. Um, some people believe there's a correlation and some people argue there's not. I, I've done a little digging into that. Um, I don't have a lot of, I didn't study a lot of that. It's one of those things that wouldn't surprise me, but also it could be an example of a parallel tradition rather than a derived tradition um, the idea of having twelve I mean the idea of like twelve is a is a pretty common it's one of those numbers that like I'm not sure that every instance of twelve across cultures is necessarily mm-hmm. referring to the same thing. That was um, my take too, is that it, it didn't seem to be directly influenced. And if it is, it's super buried. It's not to the forefront well, at all. So Right. There's a lot with like just numbers in general, like mm-hmm. in number symbolism. Um, like four is an evil number in uh, China or Japan. I can't remember which. I'm sorry, but like um, three. This obviously you guys talked a lot about threes, and we talked a lot about threes before and the symbolism of that. But um, like twelve is just another one of those numbers. Like you said, Gretchen, it's one of those reoccurring thematic numbers. So I think you're right, Luce. It's not anything one thing specific. But of course, when George is fashioning his green zombies, he can draw from all sorts of these dozens, these traditions, and sort of mix them as he wants to. So, yeah, uh, I changed the sunglasses. Everyone was complaining I looked too pale. I think uh, the blue glasses were tinting that. So now I have the uh, the yellow glasses. At least to me, I, I look more uh, more vibrant now. Of course, I'm looking through the glass. Maybe if I um, I'll just here. Wait, I can. <laughs> there he is. You go, you're going for fire now instead of ice. Yes, well, this is this is really, even though the others are star-shaped, this is a better, like, hippie Targaryen look, so. Yeah. The other ones are just kind of silly. I think what's interesting to me when you bring up, bring up the 12 tribes um, in terms of the Zodiac and, like, last hero math, like, one of the things that I think about is the fact that you have um, the story of Dinah with like Dinah and who's one of the, who's the only daughter of, um, of Jacob or of Israel that we have like a name for is Dinah. She's the, we know he had other sons and daughters, but like Dina is the one or Dinah, however you want to say that is the one that we know about. And, um, she's interesting because it's like the one sister and her 12 brothers. Um, and she has a really, really very, very tragic story, um, that I think may, I don't think that Martin necessarily connects like the 12 tribes of Israel with the Zodiac, but I do think that he might be drawing on the Zodiac there. But I do also think he might be drawing on the story of Dinah with Nissa Nissa, um, especially yeah. with the idea of like revenge for.
for a wrong and injustice done to Nissa Nissa slash Dinah um, and what her like brothers, brothers, um, literal brothers in the text, but like here might be more like symbolic brothers um, or like a, as uh, David, you and I have talked about a little bit is the idea of like a queen's guard, like her, it's her like guard, her champions. Um, and that may be what Martin is drawing on. He may be pulling on Dinah. So when I think of like the relationship between the 12 tribes of Israel to the story, I think of like Nissa Nissa and her guard. Um, and I think of like the story of Dinah and the way that like Dinah's brothers like went and killed everyone because of, because she was raped. Um, that's, that's actually, okay. So that's a, so that's, that's perfect because the last hero is not definitely a male by any means. We have Daenerys as one of the most important last hero coming to fight the others figures. And we've also got Arya who has nothing but Azor High reborn death goddess, Nissa Nissa reborn symbolism. Uh, she's an honorary Night's Watchman. Then we've got the Danny Flint legend, which I think is a strong parallel to the idea of Danny's Danny coming and fighting with the Night's Watch, Daenerys that is. Um, because think of the word flint. What's a flint? A flint is a stone that sparks fire. So it's like you could read it as Danny Fiery Stone. And I just think that is that's that's Daenerys all the way. So when we have Daenerys fighting with the Night's Watchmen. I could see her as a last hero figure there. And so now think what you just said. Dinah was raped and her 12 brothers are taking revenge for that. That element appears in the Danny Flint story. So to me, this is sort of now a collapsing archetype that we're seeing here of a female Nissa Nissa reborn kind of figure. And we've talked about the idea that, you know, when the sun and the moon combine and have moon meteor dragon children, those children are both Azor High Reborn and Nissa Nissa Reborn at the same time. And so it can manifest as a gender fluid person. And that's why we see Arya and John doing all the gender flips. Um, and I think the whole idea of the Kal Isi is even a gender flip because there's never been a female Cal. And so Danny is the now the female Kal. So uh, I'm sure you guys have something to say about that. There's also the story of um, the woman with the monkey's tail who ended the long night, which has always been very intriguing to me that we have in the Far East, we have a story that the one who ended the long night was not a man, but a woman. Um, and that's also where the, you know, Amethyst Empress, like Bloodstone Emperor story comes from around the same place. So it's always been very intriguing to me when I found that little tidbit of like, oh, oh, we have a story of a, of a woman who ended the long night. Hmm. Hmm, interesting. <laughs> I like how it ties into the idea of dragons themselves being neither male nor female and the idea that that figure could possibly be just like neither male nor female, maybe more than the sum of those parts. And some people connect um, Yintar, the name Yintar with the monkey's tail woman, because Yintar is obviously the Yeetish name for Azora High. Um, you know, it, just to make sure I'm not... Uh, skipping over something. So in the world of ice and fire, they give us five names from the East for Azor high. And one of those is Yintar, Eldric shadow chaser, Nefarion, um, and, uh, Harkun, the hero, the other three and Azor high. So Yintar is obviously Yitish name. And then Yiti, we also have the legend of the girl with the monkey's tail who ended the long night. So some people have connected those and say that was Yintar. So that that's a, a further, further connection there with the Zora high and female last year in this. So that's pretty cool. I think 
Somebody's talking about me in the chat, so we have to read that. Uh, John Lynn <laughs> says, LML looks like the love child of Jim Morrison and Legolas. That's pretty good. I like that. <clears throat> I think you make a better Rhaegar than the Rhaegar we got. I agree. TV show. Your wig is definitely better. Yeah, start a petition, someone. <laughs> Just bring this double back, please, before you film. All right, so uh, let's see here. We have another question from Cheesecloth from a minute ago. I got another question. I hardly believe this is the case, but what's y'all's opinions about whites being conscious, like Barrick, but held in a small corner of their minds, like Hodor by the others? So I think Barrick... What Barrick is conscious of himself. He's not trapped in a corner, um, but it's just a remnant of himself that's there. The question, I think, a better qu- uh, place to direct this question is for the Ice Whites. It, it, what, is there a remnant of their self in the corner? Because obviously they don't have much free will, but the Jafer Flowers White and the Othor White, you know, they knew where the Lord Commander's chamber was. So either Knight's King or whoever's, you know, controlling the up- others like puppets knew where to send the whites, or they were able to tap into that little bit of knowledge in there. And that sort of implies that there might be something left in there. And also Thistle sort of looking back at Vermeer. It could just be Martin writing poetically, uh, but it, it almost implies that there's some part of Thistle that sees him. You know, that was the last line of the chapter, she sees me. So I think there's a clue that, and this gets back to the whole idea of torture, is that the people that have been ice-whited their souls are being held captive. They're not allowed to cross over to the other side and they have to ride around in their own corpse seeing everything. That makes it even creepier. So I have to think that maybe Martin is implying that. What do y'all think? I mean, it sounds like Hodor. Like that was when you said like uh, riding around in their own bodies as they're being controlled by somebody else. Like my immediate thought was like, oh, like like Brian describes Hodor, like like curled up in the corner of his own brain, just like, you know, weeping and, and, and afraid of trying to, to do anything. I think of Hodor, I think of, um, uh, in Maester Mary's, one of Maester Mary's most recent videos where she talks about the, um, Arya receiving the face of the ugly girl. And as soon as she gets the face put on, she has that memory of the ugly girl's last moments, like her, the moment of her death. So like some part of like her death, that moment of her death and what she was feeling and thinking and seeing like remained inside of her skin somehow. Um, and that's another, we get right back to the whole Nissa Nissa putting on corpse skin idea again. Yeah. I've, I've totally forgot, but that Aria thing is, I mean, if that idea exists, that's the place to look for that parallel, isn't it? Yep. Also, or even the, the children of the forest and the birds, when Bran's skin changes the bird, the ravens and he finds, was that what you, you were going to say, I, Melanie? That was one thing I was thinking of, but no, I was going to say something else. But yeah, when he goes inside the birds and he says there was someone else there mm-hmm. and, and Blood Raven tells him like, oh, oh, she died like a long time ago. That's just like an echo of her soul or something along those lines. Her shadow, yeah. So I like the idea of there being a little tiny piece or, you know, like like poor Hodor curled up in the corner and these whites because it gives you the idea that these people are number one being tortured like you guys already mentioned. And it also gives you the idea that they are not able to their corpses that aren't able to rest and if like i hate to go by show canon but um i think it's giving us i'm hoping it's giving us some hints about what's going to happen in t wow and how the idea that 
there are others that are the puppet masters and then the whites are the puppets. And if you cut the strings between the whites and the others, then the others that are controlled by that one, excuse me, the whites that are controlled by that one specific other are all released to whatever afterlife or, you know, like rest in death that there might be. And um, it would just kind of be sort of poetic to me to have these poor tortured souls finally laid to rest. Yeah, I think I think that um, the show is at least barking up the right tree. You know, it might be a slightly different, uh, you know, ac- actual technique or whatever, but I definitely think the idea is right. And yeah, the more I think about this, the more it makes sense that the cold whites, uh, that those souls are being held prisoner in in the corner. And that also makes me think that we need to do a Hodor parody of "That's Me in the Corner," REM, don't we? That's Hodor, Hodor, Hodor. Oh, that makes me sad, but it's really good. <laughs> Hodor, Hodor, Hodor. Well, I did a, I did a riff this morning on these dreams oh. by Heart. That's pretty smoking. So maybe y'all get to get to hear that one day. Green dreams go on when I close my eyes. All right. Anyways, so let Elodia sing that one. Yeah, I will. I will. That's her. I, she's going to be mad that I even did that. Cringe. No. Hey, you don't have to cringe. You can, you can, you can uh, uh, humor me at least. Anyways, all right. So, guys. Uh, oh, they were cringing at me. Don't worry. Oh, okay. All right. Don't worry. Remember, so, the replay is a little slow. Ah, uh, that's true. <laughs> Alrighty. So, uh, guys, uh, go ahead and ask your question that I missed from five minutes ago, <clears throat> and I'll answer it. Oh, and by the way, um. Uh, let's see. Somebody piped in on Twitter and told me that Newt the Barber is indeed a goat because there's a kind of goat called a new GNU. And so uh, Newt the Barber, Lord of Oakenshield Island, a.k.a. Owen Oakenshield, who corresponds to Capricorn the Sea Goat, is in fact a goat, which kind of just really blew my mind because I wanted to connect Newt with goat and like I was trying to do it. But I couldn't quite do it, and it actually was there. So that's that was pretty fun. Those don't seem like two puzzle pieces that go together at first, but... They don't go together? They don't go together. <laughs> but they do. But they do. Let's see if I can find who did that so I can give credit. Melanie? Gretchen? I was wondering if news are the same thing as wildebeest. I, I kind of got distracted. Newts? News, Gnews. like news, yeah. Oh, news. I gotcha. always thought they were wildebeests, but maybe I'm wrong. They are in, I'm not sure that they're goats, but they are ungulates. Yeah. So they are related to goats. They kind of look um, like goats on steroids. Like, <laughs> I don't know. But no, I think, I like, I think regardless, that's a really good connection because. Yes. Yep. Newt. Just like saying that. Um. Yeah, I don't really have anything else to to add to the new the barber. Unfortunately, neither do I. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, cool. Major Cam is pointing out. She's uh, asking, uh, "Did you catch that you can get a sea goat connection via unicorn symbolism? Because unicorns are associated with the sea. Are mm-hmm. they? I, how so? Um, narwhals. <laughs> oh, yeah. narwhals. Oh, 
They're the unicorns of the sea, and then there's the whole The Last Unicorn story that we all grew up with and probably loved. Well, I'm, yeah, they're, they, uh, there's- Big heart that, for that one. Yeah, that's a, that's a great movie. Definitely, uh, influenced me as a child, but It like, made my they, little girl heart very happy. Oh, yeah. So they, news, gnus are wildebeest, and new goats are a different animal. Oh. Um, there you go. Was that you, Stein, that threw that one at me on Twitter? By Thank the way, you, oh, by the way, Stein Fleming is uh, stepped up. Uh, Sanry, this is the my patron who stepped up to claim Taurus just yesterday oh, and sent Taurus. a real nice note about how much she enjoyed both the Zodiac stream as well as your bull drawing. And so she is uh, claiming the offer of the bull print and the Taurus Zodiac patron slot. So thank you, Stein. Oh, yeah, just a... Uh... Uh, I'll get in contact with you, and I will make a print of that for you. So, oh, cool. I'm Stina. Sorry, I'm, and you even told me that before. I'm terrible. You'll have to. I'll have to beg your forgiveness. Yes, Stina Fleming. Thank you. I appreciate it. So, uh, disputed lands piping in. Yes, unicorn is the moon, the lion, the sun, and the unicorn moon fighting for the crown. The lion beast beat the unicorn all around town. Is that? Like a nursery rhyme or something to speak Yeah, it's a nursery rhyme. Mm-hmm. Oh. <laughs> it's an Alice in Wonderland, too. Oh, there you go. So I guess that all makes sense. Yeah, unicorns, narwhals, moons. Uh, yeah, I like it. I unicorns. Like it. Yay. There you, go. there you go, Sandra. You've got unicorns. Finally. Can I, get, can I get some horny goat emojis in the chat, please? <laughs> <laughs> unicorns. I think we did have a um, before that one question from Cheesecloth. We had one prior that we missed. Yes, which is uh, I've got a question. I've got a question. So LML, you identified Eris Oakhart as in Azora High archetype at his death, and uh, I wanted to ask about the Hammer of the Waters injuries. Are they usually applied to the Azora High figures, or does Martin just put them anywhere in the scene as a hint? So are they specifically applied to those figures or do they just occur in the scene or maybe both? I think it's the latter. I think he just puts them in the scene. Um, we see them all over the place. Like um, Gregor Clegane uh, gave those injuries to the stable boy and then had the injuries inflicted on himself. So we saw them repeated in the fight. Um, I Ari's Oakhart, though, is interesting because he's compared to a tree and he's called Oakhart. So he's very emblematic of like a heart tree, which which makes him a good stand-in for the land of Westeros as a whole. So I would say this is like an extra appropriate one when we see a man that's like an oak tree and a heart tree getting these wounds. Um, but the more important thing is the location uh, in Dorne uh, and the fiery hammer sun language that preceded that scene by like a page. Um, and that all gives you you know, it, it gives you a lot of important clues about what those injuries are. But that's, yeah, I, they do seem to just sort of appear in these fight scenes all over the place. Thanks for catching that one. Let's see. Uh, oh, God, creepy question. What's your guys' take on the dusky woman? Is Euron doing what has been speculated? Well, Melanie, she's a silenced woman, so I will give that to you. Yes, absolutely. She is a silenced woman. Um, I would like to know maybe a little bit more about what your take is, Derek, on what the your own speculation is. Um, but yeah, uh, so I know that some people think that she's spying for Euron, 
And um, I hope that she's literate because otherwise it's going to be really hard for her to report back to Iran. (laughs) But yeah, as a silenced woman, um, she plays a really interesting role because she's kind of like this vessel of secrets. She has in her, she's holding inside of her whatever Euron has made her privy to, all of the horrors on the silence that he's been doing. She's probably got those in her mind and she can't, and obviously is not telling Victarion these things. Um, but then Victarion in turn is kind of like making her his confidant and is telling her all of these things about killing Euron and his true intentions. So um, I don't really have a sunny outlook as far as what's going to happen with her, unfortunately. Um, I think she's probably going to end up dead, whether it's going to be at Victarion's hands or Euron's hands. I'm not really sure. Um, I don't usually try to speculate about those things, but it's fun to think about. Well, not really fun, but... Um... <laughs> Interesting. 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 So the question is how let's talk about the mechanics here. How would Euron be using her as a spy if he can't talk? I think I think the idea that Derek might be referring to is the idea that, that Euron is somehow skin changing her and actually seeing things and hearing things through her mind from a distance. I don't really know how one would do that. Um that's helpful because pa- I haven't heard of that theory before and that's yeah, that would make fucking pretty sense. nasty. Yeah. And it's terrible and it kind of like makes her a thistle like kind of person, which is really sad. Yeah, yeah. Painkiller Jane brought up uh said like I hope he's not skin changing her like some living glass candle. And that's the theory that I have heard is that okay. he is that Euron is somehow able to skin change her from a distance mm-hmm. and that he is actually like spying on his brother through her body. So That's that would be not necessarily skin changing, but more to like, uh, like sigh spying, crying or, or like, something. Yeah, yeah, riding shotgun in her head as she has sex with Euron's brother. Okay, mm-hmm. That's brother fucker, brother fucker. Can you believe this, brother fucker? It's Halloween. We have an Halloween. excuse to talk about all the dark shit this month. So yeah, it's tons of really morbid and disgusting live streams. Sorry. You all like these books just as much as we do. It's all in there, so don't blame us. <laughs> Anyways. Uh, so, let's see. Um, Disputed Land says, I think she's being warged into Thistle provides symbolism of losing her tongue when she's warged. Oh, that's a good comparison. Yep. She bites off her tongue when Vermeer invades her. Uh, that's oh. interesting. Invades. Hmm. Well, that is... Which is interesting, Nissa Nissa Weirwood symbolism yeah. too. The idea of like as soon as Nis like when Azora High, you know, kills Nissa Nissa and sends her into the tree, that's when she becomes a silenced woman. Like when he invades her and then like her yeah. dying and going into the tree is what provides him the space to do so. So if that is what is going on, I think it would fit very neatly into the idea of Nissa Nissa being like the silenced woman who is, and if she is in some sense, the tree, if, if the tree consciousness is in some sense, Nissa Nissa's consciousness, then literally every green seer who goes into the weirwood net is looking through Nissa Nissa's mind is looking like out onto the world and the past through her mind and consciousness and invading into her mind and consciousness to see the world. That's a very good point, Gretchen. And that's just the reason why I have you on these streams. Very good. <laughs> and, and in that way, Gretchen, that's her, avenue of sharing her story and it's the only the yeah. only way that she can speak yeah because she's she is 
Uh, she has. Oh, that really, that's a yeah. great idea. So, who's directing the things that the Green Seers see? Mm. Nissa Nissa. Yeah. I, uh, and ravenous I readers, like persistently annoying theory about the three eyed crow having some sort of female component. Uh, <laughs> if if there is anything to that, then perhaps. Um, perhaps that's what we're talking about here. Now, I still think, like I said, I definitely think Three-Eyed Crow is Blood Raven appearing uh, in Brand's dreams, not only because it makes sense, but because I wrote a parody song about it. Um, <laughs> but I, the idea that, um, you know, who is, who is Blood Raven learning from and who is he influenced by? Well, it's the Weirwood Net, and if the Weirwood Net is Nissa Nissa, then Nissa Nissa is really the guiding hand in all of this. Uh, so that's, that's an interesting idea to explore. Oh, somebody's confused. Yeah, well... This is pretty confusing stuff. So again, if you want to, this is a Q&A, if you want to ask some questions uh, so we can help you understand what we're, what the hell we're talking about, feel free. Anyone in the chat? Um, um, well, the person who says they're confused said just up above, can, uh, can Euron's skin change? So that I think is the context is like the idea of like, is Euron even capable of warging or skin changing another person? Do we know, is there well, any evidence that he can do that? Well, it's possible, you know, obviously there's a big theory about he's a failed blood raven pupil. And if he's a blood raven pupil, then he would have to have some sort of, you know, green seer ability or magical ability or something. Uh, so I don't know. You know, we know the far winds on the Iron Islands have have uh, pretty strong skin changer clues. I don't know. It seems like Euron. I don't know. I don't think he's really a green seer per se. I think he's something darker and more twisted, more like more like a warlock. Uh, for sure. I, th I think he's gaining his magic through things that he's inheriting. I mean, substances that he's imbibing, rather. Um, but so when we're talking about skin changing the dusky woman, I don't think that we should think about it as skin changing like Bran does Hodor, but more like a psychic scrying or a spying or like a mental spying. Um, so the dusky woman might not even know it's happening, for example. But I'd, I'd like your, your parallel a lot, Gretchen, with the idea that all the green seers are looking out of Nissa Nissa's eyes. That definitely seems like a clue that that's what's going on with uh, with those two. So I like I like the idea of what what you said. Yeah, Nissa Nissa influencing what other green seers are seeing because that, like I said, would be a way for her to show them the truth of what happened and show her in a really roundabout way about her usurpation and all that stuff. I like it a lot. I like it, Gretchen. It's good. Thank you. Uh, yeah, it might be interesting to look at. Now I want to go back and look at all of the great, like the, the visions in the weirdwood net that we have and see if there's any potential for like a connection between all of them as like threads that like, she's trying to cast out like i think of you know someone who is like mute um and maybe someone who is mute who might know sign language but everyone they talk to doesn't know sign language and so it's doing everything that they possibly can to try and like show the people that are you know existing in their space like hey this is what happened to me this is my story this is what's going on but they may not understand it and i think i mean what is it's just another way to talk about like similar to what happens with Mel. Like she sees these visions and totally misunderstands what they mean. It's like the, what if the loss of interpretation, right. it's, it's all like the loss in translation and having to interpret these like trippy, really weird experiences and dreams. Yeah. Right. Which uh, plays into one of my 
kind of little pet tinfoil ideas of that very little of what very little if anything that the green seers see in the weirwood net is actually a prophecy that all of it is past, past. all of it past. is just mm-hmm. past events that because their framework is i'm going in here to see the future they perceive it as being the future um but that all of the almost all if not most if not all of the things that people consider prophecy are not actually prophetic visions they're just yep. visions of the past that like they're interpreting as the future and if that if that's what's going on and if i mean it could all fit very nicely together of like nissanis is trying to show what happened and everyone's just like oh i've seen this vision of what's going to happen in the future um when that's and not it actually it makes sense out. because of all of the cyclical stuff that's mm-hmm. going on like everybody is somebody else come again well, that's right. what I was about to say. A lot of all the visions of the past will have a little bit of a foreshadowing, prophetic element, only because of those echoes. But right. in the in the literal sense, they're all they're definitely seeing visions of the past, not the future. Yep. I agree with that. And um, the idea that Nissa Nissa could be guiding those visions is just really, really interesting. Um, and I think because the visions that come to Bran, they don't seem random; they seem important. And it could just be the author you know, picking the ones that are important, but it, Martin likes to create devices to explain what's happening. Uh, and the idea that these, these visions are actually guided from Nissanissa's consciousness makes a ton of sense. So um, check this out. Uh, here is a quote from A Dance with Dragons, Bran. Um, and this is, oh, I want to back up and get it just a line earlier. Sorry, hang on. This is when Bran sees his father in the Weirwood vision uh, and then um, comes back. Oh, while you're looking that up, can I just say, uh, Painkiller Jane just said um, that, like, Veramir says that Aurel influenced his hate for John via skin changing. So that idea of, like, you can be influenced by the mind of someone who's previously in something can totally change how you perceive it is is something that we all we already know from the text. Good point. Nice call. Nice catch. And by the way, it was um, uh, Tom Mondragon means Moon Meteor that caught the new the goat thing. So thanks, Tom. One of my patrons. Um, But here's the quote uh, from A Dance with Dragons. Uh, So it says, No, boy, the child said, behind you. She lifted her torch higher, and the light seemed to shift and change. One moment the flames burned orange and yellow, filling the cavern with a ruddy glow. Then all the colors faded, leaving only black and white. Behind them, Mira gasped. Hodor turned. Before them, a pale lord in ebon finery sat dreaming in a tangled nest of roots, a woven weirwood throne, that embraced his withered limbs as a mother does a child. So you can see the weirwood with that mother goddess role embracing Bloodraven, the green seer. And there's a parallel quote too that I'm going to look up, but go ahead. I was thinking about um, what happens to Bloodraven because um, from the show, like, you know, he just kind of dissolves. I'm wondering what the book parallel will be. Final like form. Yes. <laughs> so I was just drawing Bloodraven as a tree. Because I was like, he's probably just going to go back into the Weirwood Net. That's the only thing that... Or go fully into the Weirwood Net, rather. Not go back. Go fully into it. And I was just thinking about um, where the actual faces that they carve into the Weirwood trees come from. And how I don't think I've ever seen a female one. Or one been described as female. But the, and and that's a really good question. What you bring up, well, that second point you made, one described as female. Yeah. How much of the assumption is, you know, how yeah. much of it is are they male or just the assumption of maleness, or even 
how many of those chosen to be green seers or who have the green seer blood or those, you know, picked to be green seers um, have been male versus female versus, I mean, it could be that if you, if we were to find places that were more populated by children of the forest, maybe there would be more of an equal distribution of, of faces that might be more male and female. It might have to do with the fact that Westeros is more patriarchal. So um, if being like a green seer is like an inherited role, you know, like Blood Raven chooses his successor. Mm-hmm. He chose Euron and he chose Bran. Of all the Stark kids, he chose Bran. Um, like, do we, is it possible that like those who are chosen to be green seers, like if their mentor is male, are they going to default to choosing a male green seer over a female? I don't know. I mean, we don't know anything about it, but it is an interesting question that no one describes the faces as as female. Well, I thought um, about it a long, long time ago when I was designing that um, Amethyst Koala piece for um, LML's wife. And um, the face on that werewood tree I kind of drew as androgynous because I was like, you know, there really should be female faces carved in the trees. And the faces that are carved, like we assume or we perceive them as male or at least the ones on the show or in the art that I've seen are represented, uh, or excuse me, represented, what is that word? Represented. <laughs> it's a new word. It's it's a new speech. Um, it's, it's very interesting how it's just all probably just a result of the culture. And the Andals coming and being a patriarchal society and taking over. So the trees that survived, maybe, that we see are male. Or I just, that's just something that I've always thought about. Like, where are the female trees? Especially with Nisa Nisa being the werewood net. Like, where are the female trees? Like, I mean, another potential layer is the assumption is our own. Yeah, that's true. As the readers. That, like, the trees may not actually be described using male language at all. Yeah. I would have to look that up. I was going to say something very similar to that. Well, most of them are don't. Uh, most of them are just, uh, they look terrible or angry or this or that. They're actually not given a gender. And I would also say that when a face becomes a thousand years old and it looks like wood and, you know, it's probably loses the maybe the gender distinctions that you would normally, uh, you know, cue on when you see a normal tree with a face. Uh, that's younger, uh, perhaps. I, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, here's all the wrinkles get in the way. Yeah, totally. So yeah, they need some some uh, Avon, the Avon lady. But in any case, um, there's another quote. So I just gave you the one where uh, Blood uh, Blood Raven has the weirwood trees enfolding him like a mother's arms. So there's two matching quotes to this, not one but two. Uh, so the first one is in Brand's Winterfell, or when he's seeing through the heart tree in Winterfell, and he sees his father. It says, Lord Eddard Stark sat upon a rock beside the deep black pool in the godswood, the pale roots of the heart tree twisting around him like an old man's gnarled arms. The great sword ice lay across Lord Eddard's lap, and he was cleaning the blade with an oilcloth. Winterfell, Bran whispered. His father looked up. Who's there, he asked, turning. And then a paragraph later, when he comes back, it says, um, and Bran frightened, pulled away. His father and the black pool and the godswood faded and were gone, and he was back in the cavern, the pale, thick roots of his weirwood throne cradling his limbs as a mother does a child. So now Bran has the weirwood limbs like a mother wrapped around him. So it's really interesting. It's like upstairs, above ground, the weirwood is described as an old man's arms wrapping around Ned. And then only two paragraphs later, 
the weirwood roots wrapping around Bran are a mother's arms. So I'm not sure what's going on, but this is only, I mean, this is like two paragraphs away from each other. So he's intentionally swapping from old man to mother there. And maybe he's just showing us that, you know, the weirwood is, is sort of one of those merged sort of entities or something. I don't know. What do y'all think? I think it kind of goes back to the idea if of, um, you know, like we're looking at Danny as being kind of Nissa Nissa come again. And if we're looking at Nissa Nissa being the embodiment of the weirwood net and maybe somehow being a dragon person um, or just like holding that dragon symbolism because of Danny. Um, plus you have a lot of descriptions of the uh, weir- the roots of the weirwood net being like, you know, white snakes or white worms, which is really similar to like dragon language. But like maybe it's that whole idea of a dragon is ne- not necessarily male or female idea again. And like just being able to switch. Yeah. Plus you have the idea of marrying the trees. So if right. you have like a, a like the tree itself may be feminine. This is totally just me like riffing right. on ideas. So I have no idea if this is going anywhere. This is just what my brain is doing right now. No, so, that's right. Go ahead. You're right. Uh, <laughs> I operate all the time, Gretchen. It's okay. Right. This is like words just like fall out of my face after like ideas roll around in my brain. This is what happens. Um, oh, yeah. So the idea of that maybe the tree itself being feminine, the weirwood net being Nissa Nissa's consciousness at some level, but the ones looking out of it might be the male green seers, and so the face that's being put on it, yeah, it's like a unity, is is male, but the tree itself has has almost a feminine aspect to it because because Bran is being told by Blood Raven that you have to marry the tree, um, and so you're marrying like the feminine tree, like the male green seer marrying the feminine tree. And then, but the face being put on it, if the face that's put on it is the face of the green seer, then it's going to be a male face. But it's a male face, in a sense, a female body, if we want to be kind of literal about it. But that's like the symbolism involved is you have like the male, the face of the male green seer, and like the the tree itself being like the feminine body that it's inhabiting or the feminine consciousness that it's inhabiting. What if the female aspect, the actual body of the tree, or sorry, the male aspect, the actual body of the tree above ground like you were saying it's called the father's arms but underground in the underworld it's the female so what if it's like almost like a reference to the soul and the body being separate if the male aspect of the tree and the union of the green seers is like a wedding like we see with bran and what blood raven says like if the female part of the tree is Oh God, it, it was so, I had so close to oh, okay. a good idea. Oh, okay, no, I think I see what you're saying. So essentially this is how I presented the weirwoods from the beginning as mm-hmm. where the the tree is like the female part or like a womb, like somebody's pointing out in the chat. And it's Azor Ahai's spirit or his fiery seed in some metaphors that goes into this tree womb. And that is what creates the pregnancy. That's what sets the tree on fire, if you will. That's kind of the whole thing about the bur- if the burning tree represents the fire of the gods, that only is created after the fiery thunderbolt hits it and sets it on fire. So it's that combination, just like the moon and the sun combine to make the moon meteor child that is Lightbringer, that is contains the essence of sun and moon, the burning tree represents the union of green seer and weirwood. And so that's why I believe it has male and female um, things. And it's a perfect parallel to Lightbringer and the idea that Azor High Reborn is both Nissa Nissa and Azor High Reborn. So that's how I'd say it. Yeah. Thank you. 
<laughs> uh, Homer demands asking about Orson Scott Card, but I have not read Orson Scott Card. Oh, I've read Orson so- Scott Card. So, okay, so I'll turn to so you. Have I. The Go question ahead, is, uh, well, let me ask the question first. Uh, do you think there is some nod to Orson Card and one of his novels where the trees are the central part to that species, religion, or philosophy? So, yeah, I'm not sure what he's talking about, but do you guys know? Darn, I did not read that one. I, I yeah, did I read... Those are, the, those are the sequels to Ender's Game. So that's Xenocide uh, 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 oh. and Speaker for the Dead. Okay. Oh, yeah, I, I didn't read those. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yep. I was totally but, forgetting that Orson Scott Card is the one who did Ender's Game. So I, I did read the second one where those, those weird creatures that come from inside the trees. I thought that was really cool. Oh, yeah. And I definitely think it's possible that Speaker for the Dead, which is the third book. Yeah. No, it's possible. What, when was that written? I'd be curious to know. Because George was writing back in 94 with these ideas. Uh, um, is, is it older than that? It probably is, right? He was born in 51. I know that much. I'm looking uh, at Speaker uh, for the Dead is from 86. Oh, yeah. Okay, yes. Okay. I, would, mm-hmm. I, would, I would believe it. I would believe that. I thought it was the coolest thing. I, I did like Ender's Game a lot. Um, not all of the other books, you know, I guess that's the consensus opinion. All the other ones yeah. are that good. But um, Speaker for the Dead, I thought was cool. And, and in particular, that tree organism shit was like really, really creative, I thought. Well, even the idea of being Speaker for the Dead, I think you could potentially call some echoes to that. Because in in that culture, the idea of being the Speaker for the Dead is being the person who speaks on behalf of the one who is dead, who tells the truth about their life that other people may not want to see, both the good and bad but the one who speaks the truth about the life of the dead person. and Which is very poignant, and it's what you take from that story. Right, and if if Nissa Nissa is someone who needs her, if she's a silenced woman. She needs her truth told, absolutely. She needs her speaker for the dead. (laughs) And I know that um, Orson Scott Card plays around with the trope of, see, I haven't read Ender's Game and that whole bit, but I read a different series where he's got somebody, he's got a, a... person living inside a tree and who was kept alive by this tree for thousands of years. And then this person eventually comes out. Um, But like in the process of coming out of the tree, the person's face is suddenly like pushed out against the tree and and people that walk by this tree notice that the tree looks like a person like reaching out. So it's definitely a recurring theme in Orson Scott Card's stuff. I'm not a huge fan, but like I, maybe I should read understand. I would stop after the third book. I tried to read Children of the Mind and it was weird. <laughs> Say no more. <laughs> Not all the, his, it's a little bit almost pedantic or heavy handed at times with his sort of philosophy, but some of the concepts in there are really compelling and stick with you after you read them, which is really what makes something, you know, a great oh, story. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, there's some, um, wasn't going to go there, but yes, there are. Issues. In any case, um, good good observation, though. Uh, so let's see here. Uh, Gretchen and Melanie, let me ask you. Um, do you have any thoughts or questions or things that you'd like to bring up that we haven't brought up following up on any of the last few episodes that I've done under the sea stuff or the Zodiac episode or the Sansa in the Veil stuff? I'll just put that up, not to put you on the spot. I'll just uh, throw that out there. We're going to probably, we've got, we've been going almost two hours. I probably won't go much past two hours. Um, so maybe 10, 15 minutes to go, I would say. 
something that might be fun to talk about a little bit is uh, going back. Uh, I know that we've been playing around with it a little bit on Twitter, but the idea of, um, and it relates to Sansa in The Veil and Ellen Eversweet. And because um, I know that The Veil is described as honeycombed. And then you have Ellen Eversweet who um, loved honey so much that she married the king of the bees, which is weird because bees don't have a king. Um, they have a queen, but uh, she loved it. <laughs> she loved honey so much. She married the king of the bees and moved to his honeycombed palace and uh, pledged to take care of all of his children. Um, and I know that Emma and a couple of other people, uh, Storm Emma and I were looking at uh, the language that had to do with milk and honey and sweetness and sweetness being related to putrefaction or, or corruption. Mm-hmm. Do we want to talk a little bit about like the relation between sweetness and corruption? Well, I probably will keep that uh, for when I actually do that zodiac sign because I haven't okay. done that one yet. So I'll wait for that. Probably, yeah, because that's that is where that one is is uh, is going. Oh, I think so that these okay. things actually ends up tying mostly to the others mm-hmm. uh, be, because um, of all there's the most honeycomb symbolism is found at the veil, and it's all used for the frozen honeycomb, uh, and so I think that. It's one of those things where he's chosen to use that as a inversion or whatever, because the others are, you know, I've called them ice dragons or cold fire and stuff like that. So they could be called icy bees. I'm actually made that analogy based on the frozen honeycomb stuff. So I feel, yeah, I feel like um, the others are kind of like the drone bees, but I think that the I think that maybe Night's Queen is the queen bee. She is. So Night's King would be the king of the bees. Uh, and he's uh, like the beekeeper, and his children are are bee children because he gave his seed and soul to Night's Queen, who would be like the queen bee. So yeah, I I definitely think that's that's how that shapes out. And uh, what's what's going on there? Is someone in the shame cube? What? Shame jail? Sandrixian's drawing no, somebody. No, don't ball. don't look over here. It's okay. definitely not the Night King in a beekeeper outfit. Oh, she was okay. she was drawing a, a, like a really cute angry bee with a crown on. Earlier. That's the king of the bees. Nice, That's I like it. Yeah. What is she Do saying? Hugh Hugh. Hugh Hugh. Hugh 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 Hugh. That's good. <laughs> oh man, that's gonna be great, Sanry. Yeah, there's definitely like honeycombed is very interesting. I've been thinking of, and there's a lot with honey. I'm interested in potentially the overlap between honey and gold. Because those seem to go together as ways of talking about. Because you have like um, the the bear and the maiden fair. The maiden has honey in her hair. Um, but Lan the clever stole fire from the sun to lighten his hair. So which is a very similar kind of idea of like honey, gold, something to make your hair, you know, lighter. And gold is very, seems to be very strongly correlated symbolically with um, cold. Uh, oh yeah, could be a play on cold, but yeah, you get gold. Gold shows up in very odd places symbolically, and I haven't yet quite figured out what he's doing with gold specifically. Other than that, it shows up in very in like predictable places. You can find so here's, gold. Here's what I think, and I I totally agree with you, Gretchen. I've been uh, puzzled by it too. Um, but what I think is happening is that gold is fire and it's the fire of the gods the manna the honey of the gods just like you'd think however when we see it in a metal form 
we're supposed to think cold, like the frozen oh. fire. Okay, so just like lava is hot fire and dragon glass is frozen fire, gold metal is something like that. And that's why the hands of gold are always oh, cold, cold and all that mm. shit. But when some but if it's like golden sunlight or something, then it's the traditional fiery gold. So that gives you a way for Jamie Lannister's transition from a sun god to like this cold good other figure that we see when he puts on the winter raiment of the king's guard and his beard turns to gray or when he's in the whispering wood and the moonlight turns his gold <sighs> silver and he, he turns into a frozen figure so there's yeah. a yeah exactly i yeah, like that a lot we haven't um i've been sort of setting jamie aside because the primary lesson that he teaches is this conversion from gold, from hot to cold and he's very like a good other figure. Um, so now that I've done Blood of the Blood of the Other series, I can actually go and do Jamie at some point. But uh, we're doing weird stuff right now, so we'll eventually come back to Jamie, and I'll do probably Brienne at the same time uh, because Brienne's got a lot of cool Ice Queen, but also Morning Star uh, hero symbolism and stuff. So there's a lot going on there. But and there's a huge overlap between gold and death. Um, the Golden Crown being a symbol of death. Gold will be um, their shrouds, yes. Golden crowns and golden... Um, and then in... Um, I think... I can't remember which character says it, but there's a line in A Dance with Dragons, the um, to crown her is to kill her, mm -hmm. about yes. Marcella. Oh, it's um, a running thing, yeah, totally. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's going to be one of my essays that I deal with about um, the Amethyst Empress, like, um, especially because you have... There's a there's a play on crowning there too, not just with like golden crowns, but the crowning of childbirth. Mm -hmm. I'm looking forward to it. It's gonna be so. Good. Um, nice, nice. Yeah, but like the crowning, like a golden crown equaling death, because you also, I mean, it's right in the first book because you have uh, Viserys receives a golden crown, and his golden crown is what kills him. Mm. Um, his golden crown, he's literally killed by a golden crown that he sold um, his moon maid in order to get. Yep, and, and Dantos is shot through one of his golden crowns when mm -hmm. he sells uh, Sansa to Peter. Somebody pointed that out to me after the fact, yeah. but he's hit you by three. Yeah. No, you're right. Yeah. You have the skulls dipped in gold, um, preserved uh, skulls dipped company. in gold, the golden company, um, go. and then um, Jaya, Jaya Zor's face from... Oh, I'm so glad you brought her up because she has last year symbolism and she's female. And yep. that's yet another one. And the story of how she... Uh, Trick Slow Boo uh, is really interesting and has a lot of really obvious parallels. I love so, her stuff. She's got yeah. a great story. Mm -hmm. That's a good one. So let me, let's check on Beekeeper Night's King. And Mijicam asked if this makes Be uh, Night's King a bear figure because, you know, the bear and the maiden fair story and potentially so, I would say. And uh, Old Bear Mormont is the Lord Commander of the Watch, just like Night's King was said to be Lord Commander of the Watch. So Danny's got her creepy bear trying to creep on her. Creepy yep. Jorah who, who now has a demon mask on. Oh. Yeah. Tattooed on yeah. his face, by the way. I was You forget that, but yeah, Jorah is really messed up. He's all scarred and beat up, and now he has a demon mask tattooed on his face. So, yeah, that's to show, signify that he's a particularly troublesome slave. Oh, uh, man. Gold, gold coins on the eyes of the dead to pay for passage, Cheesecloth says. Yep, that too. So there's oh, yeah, a pretty big... Um, Pretty big motif. That's the whole paying uh, the farrier from who carries you across the river of the dead. Sharon, yeah. Sharon, yeah. And then Christians would put, um, early Christians would put golden coins on their eyes of their dead. It's a whole thing. 
that could be a whole panel <laughs> talking about the history of that and how it influences. But yeah, here's a Beekeeper Night King um, with the Infinity Gauntlet. <laughs> and I can't remember what Thanos' stupid hat looks like in the in the comic, but it's really funny. So he's just going to have a stupid <laughs> hat. I'm really disappointed they left that out of the movie. A tiny fedora. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's great. <laughs> Sandra, you just have like such a creative mind for like all of these doodles. They're just like utterly delightful. I'm glad that they make people happy. They do. What they I'm make my for. heart absolutely happy. Very happy. This is why I agree. They, for the Knights King. They they are delightful. That's exactly the right word. <laughs> I can't wait for the coloring book. Oh yeah. Oh dude. Yeah, the coloring book is gonna be great. Yeah, I, um, I've had to put that on hold because I have some real-life things that have come up that I've had to deal with immediately. But it will happen, and it will probably happen by con time. So just so everybody's aware, there will definitely be a coloring book. Oh, uh, oh House Manwoody has a golden crown and a skull, and House Manwoody is basically just a weirwood Zora High metaphor. So the Manwoody, and I think I cut this out of an episode because it was too much of an, a sidebar, but so House Manwoody comes from King's Grave. So you think of a a place where a dead king is buried, uh, and then their sigil. Let me go ahead and pull it up. Is yeah, so it's a skull with a golden crown, Um, and and uh, don't isn't there something about a tree? Um, Oh, man, Woody, right? So the word man, Woody, implies a man that's a tree, right? A woody man. So you have a king's grave that's a woody man. And it's got the skull and the crown. So this is basically just talking about the weirwood as the grave for Azora High. I thought that was pretty cool. Wasn't there a man, Woody, that also had uh, Baal the Bard? <laughs> Sorry, I'm stuck on you, Gretchen. Um, <laughs> it's all formed into one thing in my mind. Isn't there a man, Woody, that had um, Baal the Bard um, symbolism because he was buried with his harp? Yes, that sounds that familiar. Is. That sounds familiar. Was it Michael Manwoody? Michael Manwoody, yeah. In his early years, Michael studied at the Citadel. He was a cultured man of great learning and wit. He had attended Queen Mariah Martel at her court and served at the court of King Daron II Targaryen, became a great confidant of the king. Several occasions he was sent to Bravos to negotiate on behalf of the Iron Throne to the Iron Bank of Bravos. Um, let's see. When, while it is Michael's name and seal on the letters, the handwriting appears to belong to Princess Elena Targaryen. So this is another one of those George hinting at the sort of persistent patriarchy where like, oh, actually, it was a woman who did it, but a man who got credit. But anyways, Michael and Elena were wed with the blessing. Uh, oh, so Michael Manwoody married Elena Targaryen, I think after her first husband or something. It might have been the second or third husband. Um, with the blessing of King Darren II, shortly after the death of Elena's previous husband, right? Their marriage was a marriage of love. According to Princess Elena, she had fallen in love with Michael because of his passion for music, not his intelligence. Michael would often play the harp for her. When Michael died, Elena commanded that his effigy be made carrying a harp instead of the sword and spurs, which is commonly used in a knight's effigy. Thank you. Thank you. I feel better now. There's a lot of symbolism in that. Yes. There is a lot of symbolism in that. Feel free to comment, Gretchen. Take it away. Well, I was just thinking you have like a a, a dragon woman 
who falls in love with a man who is a tree who plays music. I mean, it's almost an invertedness in a said Azora High figure where you have like a singer. Um, you have the singer who marries the dragon person um, out of love. Uh, and Ele- I mean, Elena is one of the ones who's locked up in the maiden vault. So you have everything that's going on with like, or is that, is that the same Elena? Are there multiple yeah. Elenas? Yeah, and this is the maiden same vault Elena. Elena. Yep. Yeah. yeah, the maiden vault Elena. So like the, the imprisoned woman who is, you know, freed and marries for love. And um, yeah, I was just more thinking about the idea of like the woman who falls in love with, a, but like a dragon person who falls in love with a person who is a tree, um, who is also yeah, a singer. Right. It is it's just like flipped. an inverted. Yeah, it's flipped. You're right. That's a good call. Uh, her first husband was Asa for Plum, who has a bunch of white dragon symbolism that we looked at before. And a six foot long penis. Right. So he's so again, she's she's marrying. I wasn't dreaming man. about that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> no, she's she's oh she's marrying a dead person with a with a with a penis, and then Manwitty kind of sounds like 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 a penis, but he's dead because he's from Kingsgrave. So yeah, she's marrying a bunch of dead dudes with, uh, with yeah, okay. Wow, Insert <laughs> emoji here. Just keeps going to the, yeah. There it is, right on cue. Right on cue. Uh, I was trying so hard. As soon as you said like, well, man, Woody, like I was like, you mean like a you mean like a penis? And you were like, like a man who's a tree. And I'm like, not where I oh, went. No. That is not where I went with that. <laughs> I, was, I was being mature. I was being a mature adult and analyzing the symbolism. And you were being entertaining, there's, which is hey, good. I was muted. Hey, there's symbolism there too. Don't even. Yes. Of course there is. It's always about dicks. As I like to say, <laughs> Lightbringer is always about dicks. There you go. This true. live stream is becoming weird again. What do you mean becoming weird again? Weird again. <laughs> Make the live stream weird, weird again. Yeah. There hasn't been a lot of unweirdness today. It's been a weird one, I would yes. say. It's a Halloween stream. You know, we're going going for the dark stuff. That's the thing, though. Like this whole Azor High Nissa Nissa thing is dark. I mean, it's right from the get go. It's pitched as a pretty dark affair. Guy stabs his wife, and she screams so loud the moon cracks and stuff. It's not good, you know. You mean it's what? not supposed to to be like a straightforward, unproblematic love story? What? <laughs> No, I think it's much worse than that. I think it's more problematic than it is love story. No, I, whole, I absolutely agree. Yep. But of course, the whole thing about, okay, so if you're looking at the conventional plot of a Game of Thrones and you had to say, well, what is it about? I think the number one answer is power. The thing that Martin is writing about the most is power. Um, in my I mean, there's a lot of themes, but that's one of the strongest ones. And that's the same thing with the whole fire of the gods thing is pursuit of power. That's what it's all about. So when Azor High is doing all these things and they're reaping all these horrible consequences in order to attain the fire of the gods, the most negative version of that is a, is a lust for power. And the most positive version of that is mankind seeking to expand his consciousness and to learn. And, you know, Martin being the gray area guy that he is, he gives us the full gamut of versions of this Azor High quest for knowledge in the fire of the gods. Sometimes it's very much the evil lust for power, and sometimes it's a quest for knowledge. And he likes to give us both, and Kyburn is the perfect example of the mashup, where you get someone who is questing for knowledge, uh, but he's doing it in pretty evil fashion. So this is the whole thing about, about mythology and the subtlety and beauty of mythology, is that it's not true or false 
in a definitive way, like Joseph Campbell says. Uh, it's about it's about this these colors and shades that are out there and, and stuff. So, uh, oh, somebody's pointing out, uh, Bail the Bard. Are you dropping knowledge in the chat because I'm talking too much and won't let you talk on the stream here? What is this about Ossifer Plon? Uh, Mijikam uh, mentioned it first that Ossifer is a reference to bone, and so I was confirming. Mm. Yeah, like he's ossifying, ah. turning into bone. That's what to ossify means to turn into bone. And of and course, so the weirds are bone white. So and bo- and they are bones that turn into stone. So, mm. yep, absolutely, nice. Mijikam. Nice. The whole like turning into a tree, turning into stone, makes me think of Apollo and Daphne, and just the the basic myth of like chasing someone to escape. They turn into a tree. I'm like, wow, that's pretty hardcore. <laughs> to run away from somebody, you just turn into a tree. Okay. <laughs> well, that's uh, that's why. Um, yeah. So Nissa Nissa can be seen to have fled into the green sea in some of these iterations, and Danny kind of does too. Like Viserys is trying to harass her in this one scene that I'm about to break down in my next episode, which is going to cover some of Danny's green seer stuff. Uh, she basically just rides away when he's being a bitch and just rides into the green sea and just sort of immerses herself in the green and submerses herself. And so it's it's a repeated thing. And in a sense, yeah, Nissa Nissa is killed by Azor High, but takes refuge in the Weirwoods, if you will. So, uh, uh, Sanri, are you, did you just draw Gretchen? Okay, so this is Gretchen keeping a straight face while they talk about man woodies. <laughs> that's cool. That's an awfully subtle thing to try to draw, but that's that's good. <laughs> oh i'm sorry i was muted yeah um yeah I, I i hide behind the anonymity of my screen so you guys don't get to see my facial reactions time, but <laughs> oh my gosh the fire of the gods yeah then there's a cute little fire of the gods i've got no consequences eat me Zero. nothing bad Just could happen like he's got little shiny lines We'll give him some anime sparkles. Yeah, nothing's going to happen bad if you take him, for yeah. sure. It is like the Alice in Wonderland. Mushroom. I want that on a mug. Yeah. <laughs> I want like, a mug that says, like, drink me, like, fire of the gods, drink at your own risk. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, so officially we're at uh, Pacific Coast time. We're at 2.11. So we're going to go to 2.20, which central time is 4.20. We missed the East Coast 4.20. Uh, I was informed oh. about 15 minutes late. I was informed by Bernie. So we are going to run this stream for nine more minutes, and then we're going to sign off at 4.20 Central Time. Everyone can go enjoy their their burning tree of choice. Yes. <laughs> and they can imbibe their fire of the gods. A nice hot cup of fire of the gods. Yes. Yes. Yeah, the fire of the gods can also be a drink, as we've covered before. So if you prefer, you know, to drink, uh, that's fine too. You can. We uh, have a could whole be, list. Could cocktails. be coffee. Could be green tea. Could be, you know, your fire of the gods. Could be anything. So it might Wine. taste a little rotten at first, but pretty soon it will taste like winter snows and your mother's last kiss and all those good things. Then your and your husband's sperm. Oh, what? Probably, yeah. <laughs> that's also true. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Did you miss so, this, Danny? Like, like Danny says that it tastes like Drogo seed. Yeah, <laughs> just because you know. I think I just blocked that out. <laughs> That's that fire of the gods. Uh, in any case, so um, let's before we run out of time here, let's go ahead and have uh, have you three shout out whatever it is that you've got working on right now and what's coming up and where people can find you. Um. Well. 
you guys all know me. I'm Sanrixian means dank bringer. Um, I, uh, I'm basically active on Twitter at Sanrixian. You guys can talk to me, shout at me there. I post all my drawings there. Also, MalloryDorn.com has all of my artwork if you want to look at it. Um, and I sell shirts and stickers and merch at Sanrixian.com. So that's me. I'm Melanie Lot 7. You can find me on Twitter at Melanie Lot 7, but it's the number 7, not 7 spelled out. And I love to hear from everybody on Twitter. It's just such a great community. And um, yeah, I also have a YouTube channel. You can find me on YouTube. I'm Melanie Lot 7. And you can find the written version on my WordPress site, which you could probably just Google WordPress and Melanie Lot 7 and come up because I can never remember the actual site name. So yeah. Uh, I am Gretchen, aka Baal the Bard. Uh, you can find me on my YouTube channel under that name, Baal the Bard, where I currently have uh, part one of my uh, many part and getting even more many part series on <laughs> discussing the Amethyst Empress and specifically uh, displaced and usurped women. And the text of that is on my website, which is gnls.com. You can also find me on Twitter as at gnlswriter. And uh, if you are interested in things like queer history, I have a podcast called History is Gay about uh, queer history stuff. Um, and I also write for The Fundamental. I'm a managing editor and writer for TheFundamentals.com where we do nerdy media analysis. And I do more than just a Song of Ice and Fire, but uh, most of what I do right now is a Song of Ice and Fire stuff or queer history stuff. Johan, uh, a loyal patron of mine, uh, wants to say that you absolutely killed it on the religion Panel, ball the bard, little compliment Aww. for. Uh, oh, thank you, Johan. Thank you. Yeah, I was I was delighted with uh, with what you and Sanri and Jeff had to say. Although Jeff talked a lot more on the first religion panel than the second one, we uh we might have scared him with all the witchy stuff. But in any case, uh, <laughs> both totally of those panels myself. and those, by the way, if you missed those, those are now on the Between Two Weirwoods YouTube channel and podcast feed. I I did go ahead and in case you've missed it, I split off the Between Two Weirwoods and the Mythical Astronomy. Uh, so now, you know, uh, if you if you like the Between Two Weirwoods panels, you will find those on the Between Two Weirwoods YouTube channel and podcast feed. Remember to use the number two. So it's between number two and then Weirwoods. And uh, Yensid piping in with a $10 super chat. Great live stream. Thank you, Yensid. Appreciate that. And thanks to all you myth heads who came out. And thanks, Painkiller Jane and my other mods for dropping the links to the great channels that we just mentioned. Thank you very much. Uh, we don't have to swing the band ham hammer often around here, but there's like three people, four people swinging it real quick when we need to. So thank you, everybody. Thanks, Sanry. And uh, yeah, so uh, next week, like I said, for our Halloween special, we'll be right back here on this channel. And I'll have Joe Magician, Crow Food's daughter, Sanrixian, Painkiller Jane. And we'll be talking about under the sea, patch face madness, and I'll have what I hope to be my best costume yet. So uh, <laughs> tune in for that, and uh, it'll be at the normal time, of course. And uh, if you missed yesterday's Halloween live stream on Secrets of the Citadel, you can find that on the Secrets of the Citadel YouTube channel. Um, Aziz also did a cool live stream on the History of Westeros channel yesterday, and like I said, on Halloween night. Quinn from Ideas of Ice and Fire is doing a stream. I'm not sure exactly the time, but you know his channel. You can find that there. So there's lots of good streams rolling around. Everyone likes the Halloween spirit. And I know that Joe Magician 
is busily working on a new video uh, that's going to be about why the others killed Waymar or why they treated him the way they did and what was going on there. Obviously, there's some Last Hero uh, Stark echoes in that whole drama play. And given that it's the very first thing in the whole series, uh, there's, you know, it foreshadows many, many things in the story. So we're all looking forward to seeing what the fascinatingly sharp mind of Joe Magician churns out when he takes a look at that prologue. And that's the Joe Magician YouTube uh, channel. Uh, I've got demands for more Emma. Emma will be back soon for sure. Um, I will, uh, yeah, she's, so she is in the process of getting her YouTube channel ready. She has the Red Mice at Play WordPress blog, um, but she's going to uh, take some of the material that she's written and create a YouTube channel. I've already given her some artwork for it, actually. Um, so that will be coming. And as soon as that channel's ready, I'll have her back on, uh, you know, so I can promo whatever she's doing. And yeah, she'll be back for sure. We, uh, we all like Emma. So we've got about three minutes left, guys. Any final comments? Uh, so let's see what Sandra's drawing here. Oh, this is your spot. You go between the two werewoods. Excellent. And then the guests go here, right? Uh, no, the guests get their throats cut and they get slaughtered and uh, their blood bleeds into the pool and I drink it oh, through the werewoods. That's what happened to Jeff. I haven't seen him around lately. <laughs> yeah, it's a funny right, thing. Yeah. Mm, mm, Gretchen's mm. undead. Yeah. That's why she's blue hair. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Invulnerable. It's just uh-huh. this blood sacrifice. Mm-hmm. We had to re- we had to res her just for the for the pod. So, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just a meat sack and just like a puppet walking around and being whited. Like like uh, David is just like like puppeting me right now, which is why we don't talk at the same time. So like he just you know talks through my mouth sometimes. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, see, I think we, yeah, now it's not believable. You don't, you're, you're too good looking to be a white as we've already established. <laughs> and uh, you're, the things you're saying are far too smart to be coming out of my mouth. So that's not believable either, but thank you very much for bringing your blue hair and wisdom onto the stream. And thank you also, Melanie, for coming on at uh, last second. Um, yes. You know, I was thinking I'll just keep it low key. I'll just do it with Sandra and stuff. But then I was thinking, I was like, well, I should have more mid heads on. Why not? You know, and. And then are, you and we had hung out last night. Yeah, so tell us. I got to hang out last night. Times, yeah. Yeah, we fun. They we like, the- no, they didn't kick us out, but like they were definitely only like when we got there, it was packed, and when we left, there were like, like three people. <laughs> Closed down the bar. We it was like five hours. Mm-hmm. That's what we happens what when to we say. get together. And got ignored by our waitress for the last like <gasps> two. We're like, we're thirsty. We need something. We want, we want beer. Come on. <laughs> they could have made a lot more money off of us. but They oh, could well. have made a lot more money <laughs> off of us. We are ready yes. to pay more for beer. And once again, as we reach uh, 420 Central Time, I will just remind you that if you missed San Rixian dressed as LML, that is on the Secrets of the Citadel <laughs> stream from yesterday. And Yeah, you don't want to miss that. And it is now 420. So you may imbibe. And with that, I will sign off and say, see you later, guys. Thanks for coming. Thank <laughs> you.